Welcome to Left Out, reality-based independent radio on WRCT 88.3 FM. Uh, I'm Bob Harper. I'm Danny Slater. And today's program is produced by Matt Horniak. As usual, you're welcome to call us. In fact, we would uh, very much enjoy having you call us today at uh, 412-268-9728, or you can uh, monitor, we monitor electronic mail, and you can send mail to bob at leftout.info to contact us during the show. Bear in mind that with electronic mail, there's normally uh, a several minute delay before I receive the mail. So uh, maybe it's better to call if you can, but we can also take email and uh, comment from there. So a couple of announcements, as usual, in the beginning of the program to encourage all of our listeners to listen to Democracy Now! every morning on WRCT at, at eight, from 8 a.m. to 9 a.m. WRCT every weekday morning. I encourage everyone to listen to get a different perspective on the news than you hear from uh, the uh, channels on television, for example. And I also wanted to mention that in the next hour at 7 o'clock after today's program of Left Out, uh, Matt Toops will be playing a, uh, a lecture given by uh, Brent Mickham, who's a, uh, an attorney from the Center for Constitutional Rights, who is speaking and spoke here recently at Carnegie Mellon about uh, the seeking uh, basic constitutional rights for the Guantanamo Bay detainees and, in general, about human rights, due process, torture, and mistreatment there. And that will be on today at 7 o'clock immediately following today's edition of Left Out. One thing I uh, did also as an announcement, I just uh, remembered that um, in two weeks we'll be having a guest named Chris Moody, <clears throat> sorry, Chris Mooney, who is uh, an author and has just recently written a book called The Republican War on Science, and he'll be our guest on Left Out in two weeks. Two weeks' time. So <laughs> today uh, we have Bernard Giselle from Princeton University. He's a professor of computer science, and he's written um, a number of essays on, on politics, which have gotten a lot of uh, a lot of um, uh, interest and, and a lot of readers. Um, he was on our program, um, I think, four weeks ago, and um, we were so so um, impressed by his by his um, ability to you know pontificate and all the I- brilliant ideas that he had that we invited him back for today's program. Um, so, uh, Bernard, Bernard, welcome to Left Out. Uh, uh, hi, Danny. Hi, Bob. How are you doing? Thanks for having me back. Thanks for being on the show. So, um, I guess the um, one of the stories we wanted to talk about today was uh, a lot of revelations and a lot of activity in this old, old story that we've covered here several times on, on Left Out, uh, the Judy Miller uh, story, which uh, Bob has uh, cleverly named uh, the Pinch and Judy Show. If you look in our in our, in the program notes for today's program, uh, yes, we have a little comment on this. Uh, you uh, long-time listeners of Left Out will recall that about one and a half years ago on this program, uh, we were discussing, as we had several times, the Valerie Plame affair, which for so long was completely ignored, uh, apparently, by the government. And finally, there was some investigation was started. And we mentioned on Left Out a year and a half ago, and I can't resist gloating a little bit, that uh, that probably Lewis Libby would be implicated in the in this affair and was probably one of the one of the prime people behind it. And sure enough, uh, as we've now discovered, as uh, Judith Miller, after spending 89 days, I think it was, in jail, uh, decided that she was going to testify after all to the grand jury that was run by Fitzgerald in Chicago to investigate the affair, and the result of which was to reveal that uh, that she. Uh, that Libby is one of her primary sources, although not uh, statedly anyway, at least in public, uh, the source for the uh, identity of Valerie Plame being a CIA operative. So, uh, Bernard, I wonder if you could uh, give us your uh, your views on this whole operation. Oh, this whole mess. I mess, yeah. The Pinch and Judy show. Uh, also, I wonder why everybody's name uh, Pinch or Punch or Scooter. Or <laughs> <laughs> I guess there's a different, a different talk altogether. Um, well, I mean, there's the main story that has been, you know, uh, you know, happening and and, and told uh, in the press. Uh, but then there's also the sort of things one, you know, speaks much less of, which makes you wonder whether the story about the outing of a CIA operative. You wonder. Who was the CIA operative? Well, was that Judy Miller, for instance? Because she really, really behaves just like that. I mean, for example, uh, you may have read that uh, she granted Libby's request that he be identified uh, as a former Hill staffer. Now, in his past, he worked uh, on the Hill, so there's nothing wrong with this. Well, except that right now he's the chief of staff of Cheney, and or so she could either identify him as, as such, or simply say it's anonymous, which they do all the time. But to actually identify him as former Hill staffer is 
purposely misleading. It's like to kind of throw a curved ball. Now, why would a reporter do something like this unless they're out to cover, to protect, not the public, but a government official with whom she has a very close uh, professional relationship? Well, a lot of things have come out lately <laughs> because of all this. Sure. The, one of the things that surprised me to read here for the first time was there was a memo written in uh, December 2000 by uh, another reporter, Craig Pies, um, who worked with her on al-Qaeda stories, and he wrote a memo um, which included a paragraph that said, I'm not willing to work further on this project with Judy Miller. I do not trust her work, her judgment, or her conduct. She's an advocate, and her actions threaten the integrity of the entire enterprise, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, I mean, this is just scathing damnation of a reporter, and yet this had absolutely no effect. She, this was in, written in 2000. For, for th- you know, three more years, she continued to, re- well, more than that, years more after that, and Your, doing the that- same thing. Years after that, and years after uh, after having been supposedly taken off the issue by by Bill Keller, she remained employed, and as he put it, I've forgotten the exact phrasing, but she kept uh, somehow moving back onto the topic, which was certainly the case. Yeah, right. And then the other the other thing that struck me as interesting <clears throat> was this this revelation that she made uh, in a, uh, an article, I think, on Sunday in the New York Times, was that um, she had um, security clearance to, to secret information. Yeah, so the straight story on this hasn't come out, has it? I mean, there seems to be all different stories, and nobody seems to uh, be owning up to what's the straight story. And Norman Solomon described this as preposterous, that that a a reporter would be given clearance. Uh, It it just defies imagination that, you know, that that would, how could that happen? What sense does that make? Yeah, and also the fact that uh, she's really still lying to to us, but probably also maybe to her editors, when she says she does not recall her second source, uh, evidently she, there was a, another source besides Libby to tell her about Valerie Flame, in fact, mm-hmm. uh, she wrote down not, not Flame. And uh, I mean, this is like somebody said, this is like Bob Woodward not remembering who Deep Throat was. I mean, who is going to believe that for a second? So yeah. why, what game is she playing now? And it wasn't like three years ago. It's not fair to say, oh, it was three years ago or two and a half years ago, because it, the question of the revelation of this as being an, an illegal act was something that was being discussed just months after this happened. Yeah, absolutely. So. No, I think there's no, there's no question in here. There's lots of things in her uh, little article in the New York Times on Sunday um, that I think uh, shows that she's doing her absolute best to continue the cover-up as far as possible while trying herself to stay out of jail, because that seems to be the prime the prime, motiva- prime motivation here, which it would be uh, if, if I were in her shoes, trying to stay out of jail. And um, I think it could be tricky because there's all sorts of talk now about who may be indicted in this. We're talking about as many as 23 people. Including Who's, 23, I never heard that. 23 cases, yes, as many as 23 cases. Indictments. Maybe, and maybe come down as indictments, yes, that's right. Including basically every <laughs> everyone you know. I mean, all the names you know. Go right down the list, you know. Uh, Alberto Rove, Gonzalez? Uh, no, but Rove, um, uh, Libby, Hadley, uh, Mary Madeline, who, who you certainly know. Yeah. Uh, even Dick Cheney. <laughs> Uh, could be could be right up to including the vice president himself. In fact, Has that ever uh, happened in the history of the United States? Uh, an that, indictment. Uh, uh, That's a really good question, Bernard. How's Most, your history? No, I don't know. But these developments, um, I read about some some rumor. I don't know how much credit to give it, but uh, that this new development has to do with the fact that uh, someone, uh, maybe John Hanna, um, flipped and decided to strike uh, some kind of bargain or something with Fitzgerald, and he's talking. And uh, now, if it's John Hanna, he's the man who worked for Bolton in the State Department before Bolton moved on to New York. And uh, so he'd be, you know, way up there, which also perhaps explains why Bolton visited Judy Miller three times in jail. Yeah, that was weird. a very strange thing to happen. I mean, uh, so, yeah, it seems perhaps now there's... The ship is sinking. All the rats are trying to, <laughs> yeah. you know, scooter, uh, scoot out. So the late-breaking news uh, that's coming from U.S. News uh, this afternoon is the uh, possible resignation of, of Dick Cheney. Uh, I don't know whether you've heard this, Bernard, but there's... Yes, I heard that. And, uh, and there's the, the follow-up, which also is very intriguing, which is that Condi Rice would be elevated to vice president. I would say almost certainly, right. And yeah. then that makes the race... in. Oh, wait, very interesting, because that means McCain is dead, and that means that for Hillary, in fact, I think it's good news, because he takes off the 
the women's as president issue if you have two nominees who are female, mm -hmm. that issue is out. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so, but perhaps it's just rumors. Wait, you're knows. saying because she's going to be the vice president, that means she's going to run? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, that's a guaranteed, right? Yeah. I mean, and for Bush, that's a dream come true because yeah. she's very close to him and so on. So it could be a ploy. I mean, see, that could be a ploy from Karl Rove to create this huge, big, big wave. And oh, then sympathy. when Fitzgerald only indict, you know, Libby and Rove, people will say, oh, no big deal. I, who knows? You yeah. know, those guys are, <laughs> they know how to play, you know, people. Well, it's, 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 this is all part of the criminalization of politics, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I would say the politicization of criminals is more like it. <laughs> But the uh, so yeah so there are many many angles on this and it's really hard to deduce all of them to figure out what really is going on. But it seems I had a few uh, thoughts on the subject. So one reason for calling the topic in our program, the Pinch and Judy show, was the the apparent uh, intimate involvement of Pinch Salzberger, who is the publisher for of the New York Times, because it seems uh, so unthinkable that Judith Miller could be getting away with this kind of obvious stenography. Uh, for the uh, for the interests and uh, the the neoconservative interests in the White House for so long, and that even now, even in the wake of uh, of um, of Howell Raines having resigned and Bill Keller having taken over, that this continued, where Keller is even openly saying she's you know uh, she's a loose cannon and does whatever she wants and can't control her. Um, this is impossible without the at least the tacit acquiescence of the publisher Pinch Salzberger. And in fact, I would say, in my own personal opinion. It seems very likely that this is all a setup from from the beginning. That Salzberger knows perfectly well, and that this was a deliberate a deliberate uh, uh, effort to plant in the New York Times a mole whose purpose was to help promote, in this case, the Iraq War, but probably larger interests as well were were really you know at stake here. And I wonder what what do you think about the plausibility of this, or is this me being a paranoid a paranoid left wing nutcase? Well, the history of the Bush administration is that anybody who's been paranoid has proven right. So, uh, so you, you, you might be onto something. But something I observed, which is not explained, which I don't understand, which is related to what you're saying, is that while Pinch and Keller, but Keller takes his marching orders from, from Pinch, went sure. out on a limb, uh, editorials after editorials over the summer to, to support her, to, to, to uh, implore, implore the judge to release her because uh, saying, well, she's not going to talk, she hasn't talked yet, she's not going to talk, and so on. And the next thing you know, Miller turns around, makes a U-turn and says, oh, yes, I'll talk. So it seems that, in fact, this relationship has been one way, that, uh, that Pinch has gone out of his way to protect her, but she hasn't done anything back in return. So... There, it's a little bit of a mystery. Uh, you, you, you see what I mean? I mean what goods does she have on her? Times look terrible. I mean, this is worse, much worse than Jason Blair as far as scandals go. Yeah, that was, I, I was going to comment on that because they, they had a huge, like, three or four page uh, expose about all the, all the mistakes he published. The tiny little details. Tiny little details. Oh, he, he didn't, this was incorrect, blah, blah, blah. And then ignored, essentially, this, the Miller thing, which was a massive. Uh, if, you know, the, the, the consequences of that were the, the so, war. So basically. at the time when the Blair scandal broke, I wrote a letter to Hall Raines directly as a managing editor saying, and not, not really intended for publication. It was really just a letter to him saying, uh, quite explicitly that, look, the, this Blair thing, cause I had been wondering, if I go back in time a little bit, the thing that had puzzled me about the Miller affair is that up to that point is it was perfectly clear to me what was going on, but I couldn't quite figure out, like, why was the Times allowing this to happen? Like, what what was going on here? So when the Blair thing broke, I began to realize that, uh, you know, the whole, the internal workings of the Times were far more complicated than you might expect at first. And so I wrote to him, I said, you know, you have a you have a much more serious problem than this Blair problem, and the problem is Judith Miller, and here's the kind of thing that's been going on, and you really have to be looking into this. Of course, I didn't expect any reply, and I never got a reply, of course, I, I knew that. But I, but I felt that, that it, you know, that it had to be said. So it was it was so it was so it was always so obvious. So the good news about it, I suppose, is that finally some of this stuff comes out in the open. Um, but the but the thing that is deeply disturbing is how it went on for so long, with complete silence and acquiescence, really, from the New York Times organization. But it's the publisher is the guy who owns the paper. Well, see, this he, is, he goes pulls, back to my he hypothesis, right? right? The only I mean, hypothesis that makes any sense to me is that uh, he was in on it from the beginning. 
and, and no, exactly. There could also be a, well, this is going pretty far, but uh, in speculation. But uh, but as you know, the New York Times is controlled uh, by by Pinch's family, and right. they don't own it entirely, but they have a, uh, controlling shares. And uh, however, within the family, it's like it's like a civil war. They hate each other. And uh, when true? Pinch took over from his father, there was a major battle there, and there are losers in the family with with long knives. You know, those people now running the Boston Globe or all these sort of sub-papers of the, of the empire. And, you know, so who knows? Who knows what's going to come out of this thing? I, I wouldn't be surprised if, if Pinch gets the pinch. I mean, just... <laughs> Uh, who knows? No, that could be. Uh, I, I would, wouldn't be surprised also if Keller were to resign, because the problem, as I understand it, is internally in the New York Times, the, the newsroom, as, as it is spoken of metaphorically, all the reporters who are working, the, the journalists who work there, are, are and have been ex- outraged by Judith Miller's, the whole handling of the Judith Miller affair. And uh, this kind of thing can only go, go on for so long before the organization begins to self-destruct. Right. And People start talking it. But the fact that they still haven't fired her, just just this formal, is extremely just formally surprising, just said, yeah. you're fired. Mm-hmm. I, I, it's, it's, but they're letting her write, a, write an artic, more articles, just defending it or something. And I mean, and for Bill Keller to say, or to have somebody say for him that Judy was allowed to drift back into the story. Uh, I mean, to me, this would be like in a hospital, you have a nurse who is caught doing open heart surgery. And then she's drifting back into the operating room yeah. a few weeks later, and she's caught performing <laughs> another heart operation. And the head of the hospital says, yeah, she was allowed to drift back. I mean, come on. <laughs> I know. It's, it's amazing. So going back to a point you mentioned earlier, Danny, I mean, there's this issue of her having a security clearance. What, what, is, the, what is the current state here? Is, it, is she known to have had a security clearance or not? I saw an article, uh, excuse me, a letter by uh, John Conyers, wasn't it, uh, sent to uh, uh, Field Marshal von Rumsfeld yesterday, demanding to know whether she, in fact, had a security clearance and what documents she was forced to sign and which other reporters were given a security clearance and so on. I have no idea whether they'll even bother to answer it. I think the only question is that uh, Conyers is the ranking minority member on the Armed Forces Committee, Armed Services Committee, so uh, presumably there's some obligation to answer. So do we know what's the current state of affairs here? I didn't know that. What we do know is she was the sole embedded, embedded reporter with the, with the, uh, uh, the uh, Iraq survey group after the invasion, the fall of Baghdad, to uh, go through the OJ-like hunt for weapons of mass destruction <laughs> in Iraq. And she was the only one who was permitted to be uh, only reporter. Right, the one and only. And there are all sorts of stories, and these are these these are stories, these are rumors. But there are all sorts of rumors about how she behaved with respect to the uh, the the military people there. That she was able to order around the generals and yeah. tell them to do whatever she wanted. Bernard, do you want to expand on that? Yeah, no, no, I just remember exactly. Uh, and so now the question is, to what? Ex- I mean, that's certainly true because I heard uh, reports about this during the war, and. Uh, but right now, the question, some people say, well, we don't know whether she really had a special clearance or it could be that she's just uh, being, you know, so arrogant and she calls herself Ms. Runamuck. Yeah. That she sort of, uh, you know, blows her, her, her own horn and just try to make herself self-important. And uh, so that, that'll play out in but day. presumably this is a fact that can be uh, can yeah. be uncovered. And if she were working, can you imagine the scenario? I mean, if she actually had a security clearance, let's say, that means they did a background check on her and so forth. That means that she signed documents not to disclose yeah. what she saw, and she was representing herself as a journalist for none other than the New York Times. It's It's absolutely outrageous. Yeah, I mean, she clearly was not serving... The interest of the newspaper. Uh, well, maybe she was. After all, depends what you think. The, <laughs> well, well, depends what you think the interest of the newspaper is. Yeah. But one uh, of the articles I read said I think it was Howell Raines was was just uh, ecstatic that that the New York Times was was had this reputation as a liberal paper was coming out hard on the WMD story. You know, yeah. erasing this image of the liberal media. That's a very good point. In fact, that may have been there may be some subtext there as well that says that. Trying to exactly trying to erase the stigma, the so-called stigma. But after all, I mean, what liberal media? Eric Alterman has it right. And look, here's the New York Times, supposedly, you know, the 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 chief outlet for the liberal media. And here we have, you know, look at look what we're talking about. It's 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 disgusting. But after 9/11, there was a general 
uh, lust for war, right? I mean, there was like, exhilaration coming from all, almost all media uh, to, uh, to actually do something and to go and beat up somebody. And so the New York Times was completely caught up in that. Even though facially the editorial page came against the war, the rest of the paper was clearly for the war. That's uh, that's quite true. Uh, very very true. In fact, so was most of the. In fact, practically every every uh, possible media outlet in the country. It was disgusting uh, the extent to which no they would broach no disagreement of any kind. So we're talking here today. Uh, we're, you're listening to Left Out on WRCT 88.3 FM. We're talking to Bernard Chazelle, who's a professor of computer science at Princeton University and a well-known political commentator. And uh, your listeners are welcome to call us at uh, 412-268-9728, or you can also send Bob, uh, mail, excuse me, email to bob at leftout.info, and we'll monitor that during the show. We'll take a brief break, and uh, when we come back, we'll talk a little bit about the recent sea change or change in attitude on the part of the mainstream media with respect to the Bush administration, and please feel free to give us a ring. Welcome back to Left Out, reality-based radio on WRCT 88.3 FM. We're talking with Bernard Chazelle, who's a professor of computer science at Princeton University and well-known political commentator. We have been talking earlier about the uh, the Judith Miller affair. Um, listeners are welcome to call us, call in and uh, join the discussion with Bernard and Danny and I um, by telephoning us at 412-268-9728. That's 268-WRCT. Or to you can also send mail to bob at leftout.info. We'll be monitoring that during the show. The next topic I wanted to uh, discuss, uh, Bernard, I hope you're still on the line. Yeah, I'm here. Okay, good, thanks. Uh, I wanted to talk about was the uh, the recent uh, dramatic shift in, uh, in attitude on the part of the mainstream media with respect to the Bush administration, and I have a few sort of initial comments to make, and then hopefully I can pick up from there. So the, the thing, of course... Uh, people of, uh, of our general uh, point of view have been enjoying the meltdown in the Bush administration. I mean, the opinion polls, for example, are going through the floor. The free fall continues. Uh, we can go on and on one, one, uh, one catastrophic event after another from the trivial to the very serious all the way. And it's been interesting to, to suddenly see all of this nonsense exposed. And you can talk about, for example, the exposure of the, uh, the fraudulent uh, uh, interview or discussion with the U.S. soldiers in Iraq, which uh, was uh, it's laugh. I actually I have to laugh. I mean, it's absolutely ridiculous w- what they did with everything completely rehearsed and so on. And all of this is all really great. And it's nice to finally see hard questions being asked by Helen Thomas, for example, in the White House press room and being defended uh, on her on her questioning. And it's very good to see these guys on the ropes and all that's great. And, 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 it, and it, it, it's about time. However, you know, the thing that disturbs me is it seems to represent a continuation of the pack mentality that our, that our, uh, that our, well, our, our mainstream media news outlets uh, seem to adhere to, which is that all of a sudden everybody thinks exactly the same way. So for years and years now, for nearly five years, four and a half years now, something like this, George Bush has been, you know, a transcendent leader of, of, of incredible significance, one of the best presidents ever to be a president. President of the United States, one of the greatest leaders in the in the world, and so on and so on and so on, in, in the face of the obviously obvious nonsense, and now all of a sudden they've changed. So just so what I've been thinking is just because I like what they're saying doesn't make it a good thing, and uh, and so the question is, uh, what what what's your take on all of this? Uh, me? Yeah, uh, if okay, you like, sure. if you like, or yeah, Danny. Sure. Uh, thanks for bringing that up. This is a very interesting topic. I mean, I, the way I look at it, it's really uh, makes, uh, you know, the Walter Lippmann's point is the manufacture of consent. And in that regard, things haven't changed. The sort of pack mentality. I mean, I think you're right that there's a sea change in the sense that there's been all these disasters, uh, you know, gas prices, Katrina, of course, and all these scandals uh, coming up. Um, Harriet Myers is very interesting. Mm-hmm. That's the first time the disaster uh, comes from the other side of the Bush administration come from the from the right, no, not from the left. And uh, but I think the war in Iraq is the key thing. That the war, the, the Bush is not doing his part of the bargain. And the bargain in the media was this: it, it's like you go and you win this war, and we'll provide the coverage you deserve. And now Bush is not doing his part because he's losing the war, and the media just can't deal with that. So now it's sort of reversing gears and George Packer of the New Yorker 
They never said they were wrong, of course, but they will blame the Bush administration, forgetting that they were the cheerleaders behind that, and say, well, I was in support of the war by whiskers, but now I realize maybe I was a little bit too enthusiastic, and now it's all going. Uh, but I really think that's the war that says that this thing is going you know, nowhere or off the, you know, off the cliff. It's what's driving this, this complete change, I believe. So I want to come back to that point uh, in a moment, but we have a caller. Uh, so we have a caller from um, named Murray in Pittsburgh. I wonder if you could go ahead, please. Uh, yes, uh, mine isn't so much a question, but uh, a request for a, um, an opinion from all of you, uh, because my concern has uh, throughout uh, this whole mess been that uh, the United States, uh, the, the main so-called mainstream media, has, uh, I think, by design, uh, been uh, been shut off of the, uh, the the whole thing. I mean, they have had such a successful design that the common man in the street has no clue what's, as to what's happening in the country, uh, why anything is happening. To, to give you an idea, I was not born and raised in this country. Okay, I came here 25 years ago, and I would bet <clears throat> my uh, children on this. If uh, this Downing Street uh, memo came out in any other country, that president would be in trouble. And uh, when when you have such uh, lack of media or media that that is sleeping, and the nation is unaware of what is going on, I don't know how the next uh, government, whether this is a Democrat or I, I can't see it any other way, how is this ever going to be remedied? I mean, th this damage that was done, it's going to take many, many decades to undo, if at all. Oh, that's a very good question, Bernard. I wonder if you might like to comment. No, no uh, this is true. I mean, I think that uh, I don't want to use words like, you know, prostitution, so on, though I will. Uh, but I think the media, for the sake of access, will prostitute itself. In, in other words, you know, you, you play a game. If you want to be invited to the White House function and be on the front seat and being asked the question, then you have to play the game. And so you cannot bring up things like the Downing Street memos and you know, stuff like that. You just can't do this. And so, so I think you have people, journalists, who are, they start out well in intention, but then they fall into the system and they're completely unwilling to challenge it because it will challenge the comfort of their system. So, it's really not just where they're just bad people not doing their job. No, they're doing exactly their job. The job really tells them that they have to, uh, to, 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 to sell out for access. And right now, access means Republican everything. All the White House is Republican. Both uh, chambers of Congress are Republican. Uh, I mean, you name it. And so basically, it's a one-party system right now. And so there you have it. So, so Murray, I wonder if you could mention, where, or if you're willing to, where, where you moved here from? Uh, Turkey. Oh, from Turkey. And so do you have a, something specific in mind? Do you think a similar, what would happen if a similar thing happened in Turkey? What's your opinion about that? Well, there would be much more severe inquiry. There would be backlash, which none of, none of which ever took place in this country. I mean, he just got away with murder. I always tell my friends, your country, I, I, I feel like I can say it even though I'm a neutralized citizen. I say, you know, you don't realize how nice you have had it, yet there is somebody turning this into a third world country. Your liberties are vanishing one by one, and none of you are even showing any dissent. In the yeah. 60s, I had long hair like everybody else in this country. <laughs> I listened to the Beatles. I mean, I grew up just the same way. And what I remember is there was tremendous backlash. There was tremendous protest, outpouring. Yet I look around, and all I see are these uh, stupid yellow stickers behind every car. <laughs> w stickers. Well, yeah, this man wouldn't be taken yeah. serious in any other country. I'm dead serious about this. No, I, I want to uh, just follow up. I completely agree with your point about the third worldization of America, which is how I, I think I, I, you're right. I think that's what's happening. If you look at the distribution of wealth for, among rich and poor, uh, the, um, just the things are getting worse. And... Um, that's something, again, it's just, as you say, it's people are sort of in denial about that. And um, um, I forgot what else I was going to say. It's curious how people do not vote for their economic interests. Oh, yes. There's a point that we, go ahead. Yeah, well, there was a, there was a poem that, uh, by uh, Cindy Sheehan's daughter, um, which is called A Nation Rock to Sleep. 
which it's a poem about a brother and about how how this the whole war got started and how this, the nation was just somehow put to sleep by the whole the, by the media or something and and didn't realize what was going on. So maybe you can tell me how it is at CMU, but I can tell you at Princeton, uh, you can walk through campus if you don't know there's a war in Iraq, you will not find that out. There's not a single sign. I mean, you'll find where the the, the movies are located, where the parties are taking place and all that stuff, but there's no mention that 18-year-old kids are getting killed and maimed uh, in a faraway land. I think it's the same. Yeah, I think you would notice that it's largely invisible here as well, uh, except in a very small minority. And when there have been anti-war protests in, in Oakland, uh, uh, there have been quite a number of CMU students who were uh, doing counter-protests in favor of the war. Really? Yeah, I'm sorry to say it, but uh, I, I have to say I see it as sort of childish in a way. But there is a, a lot of this, uh, yeah, pro-Bush, uh, uh, anti-anti-war protests going on. Uh, so it's uh, that's that's uh, not something I feel really great about. Well, Murray, thank you for a very interesting call. We'll, we'll try to free up the line and get other additional callers may wish to call uh, left out at uh, 412-268-WRCT. That's 268-9728. Or you can also send mail to bob at leftout.info. I want to just follow up on one of the things that, that you raised, um, which is this: you're, you're sort of implying or that there's this been this change and sort of a, a a mob mentality sort of going against the administration. I don't. Well, and w- when we could map this out by saying, for example, uh, look at the Downing Street memo and say, well, that was early summer, May or something. That got no publicity. Uh, then during the election, of course, there were these strange things like the bulge on Bush's back, which got no publicity. In fact, the New York Times killed an article that was about to be published. They pulled it. The CBS News had an article about WMD that they pulled before the election saying, oh, we don't want to affect the election, not knowing that, not realizing that pulling the story is a, affecting the election. So it's just – but are you saying, Bob, that, that if this had happened now, if the Downing Street memos were had appeared today – they would be treated differently than they were treated back in May. Do you think there's been a, a shift there? Well, or, or I, I, actually, to be honest, you know, I'm going to sound like I'm contradicting myself uh, because I would say they're not, and I'll tell you why. Because the experiment's been done. Uh, just on Sunday, the Independent and uh, uh, the London Independent reported uh, another leak from uh, from Downing Street, from Blair's office, from his personal secretary, in a memorandum sent to the personal secretary of Jack Straw's foreign foreign affairs uh, secretary, uh, saying that Bush, uh, recording the results of a conversation that Bush had had with, with Tony Blair in 2003, saying that, well, after Iraq, they intended to go after Pakistan, North Korea, well, this is part of, and wait, wait, Saudi Arabia, uh, Iran, and, uh, and Saudi Arabia. So the thing that is really surprising is the Saudi Arabia part. And it's hard to know how to interpret this. But here's the thing. This is in The Independent. And this is a memorandum on Downing Street Whitehead. This is just like the earlier Downing Street memo. Irrefutably have you seen, valid me- have memorandum. You seen, exactly. Have you seen a single mention of this? I haven't seen a mention of this, like, for in example, the in the... No, not in, in the U.S. Media. Not in the U.S. Right. I have not seen a single mention of it. So I think you've just uh, proven yourself so wrong, So you could Bob, say that I've proven <laughs> myself wrong, but it's also demonstrable that the that the attitude toward Bush has changed dramatically since the Katrina disaster. I mean, you do right. have situations where, where... I mean, it goes both ways. It's not a 100% change, like another example that comes to mind. Although they did expose and ridicule the this this bogus interview with the soldiers in Iraq, which was rehearsed to within an inch of its life. Um, they didn't expose, for example, that uh, when Bush did this little uh, staged event in, in uh, New Orleans, or actually outside of New Orleans, where they set up, they, they took soldiers out and put in a helicopter and put all these, you know, relief supplies and had everybody organized, that it was completely fraud, that it was completely staged, that the thing was set up they had staged, and then dismantled. Staged distribution and, of and it was the German oh. press that reported it, but not the American press. Did not Now, the thing that, that galls me is that all the American reporters, all the major, you know, American news outlets were there. It was a press conference by President Bush at the scene of a disaster, and they had all these soldiers lined up there. They had all these boxes of medical goods, a helicopter, you know, the whole nine yards. But it was a fraud. It was an absolute fraud. The thing that gets me is that those guys were standing right there. They knew perfectly well that this was a fraud. Not a single so one I, I of them. I think we have to make a more nuanced yeah, exactly. So I'm, I'm arguing against myself. So, Bernard, bail me out here. Bail me out here. Bail me out here. To go back to your earlier point, <laughs> I think what's happening is that Americans don't, 
where they don't like to look back anyway, but they don't like to look back, especially when looking back means they realize that they were wrong. So mm -hmm. I think to revisit what happened in the, year, the, the years and the months uh, to run through the war is not something right now they really want to do. But, but there's a difference, though, because if you look, for example, last January, the election, and, and this sort of naive, completely naive, over-the-top enthusiasm, like, oh, now Iraq is like Switzerland because they've got <laughs> an election and, and they have purple fingers, right now... It, these are strange smiles when you read those articles. That, yeah, I guess, yeah, I guess it's good. The Constitution will pass, and I guess maybe, maybe. You know, these are coming from people who uh, nine months earlier were just absolutely beside themselves with joy and everything. So I, I think now people are just coming to realize that, you know what, we're screwed. We are screwed big time. And, uh, and if you want to talk a little bit about the Constitution, I think that's very interesting uh, what's happening. I'm no Iraq expert, but, but I've read... Uh, uh, comments, uh, uh, comments from from experts, and uh, who I tend to trust, who uh, who look at this as absolutely the worst case scenario. Okay, uh, before we go to that, that's a yeah. great topic. But I'm we sorry. have another yeah, I didn't want to we topic. have another caller on the line. Uh, we have uh, Abby or Abby, I think it is, uh, who uh, wishes to talk about some anti-war events. I think in response to uh, to Bernard's comment. Abby, go ahead. Oh, hey, guys. Or it's uh, Abby. Excuse me. Abby. Okay. I, I couldn't tell from the message I got. Uh, yeah, this is about, uh, Marie was saying, what's up? Is you don't see the anti-war stuff going on. I uh -huh. just wanted to mention that um, there is an emergency protest being planned, and the, the date is the day after the 2000th U.S. casualty in Iraq, which could be this week. Could be any day, yeah, because we're well yeah. up into 1900, aren't we? So this is, uh, this is run by American Friends Service Committee in Code Pink. Okay. And uh, it's going to be in, starting in Oakland at the Dinosaur. Uh, no, okay. Start at the Friends Meeting House at 5.30. In front of this, at the Carnegie, uh, the Carnegie Institute there, on the corner on Forbes Avenue by Shenley, enters the Shenley Park you're referring to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, good. Well, thank you for pointing that out. And uh, it really could be, I'm sorry to say, could be any moment now that we pass the 2,000 mark. Uh, you can be sure that we haven't come anywhere near the end of this yet. Thank you for calling in. All right. Uh, thanks. Bye. Okay, sorry. Uh, so, yes, yeah, so Bernard, you brought up uh, an interesting point, which is worth uh, going into, which is the uh, the Iraq uh, Constitution. Let me mention to our listeners again that you can phone us at 412-268-9728. Uh, We're talking to Bernard Chazelle from Princeton University about a number of topics of contemporary interest. And now we, right at the moment, we'd like to talk a bit about the uh, the vote this past weekend on the Iraq Constitution. Bernard, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, the Constitution, I mean, to begin with, it's like a, a play by Beckett or a novel by Kafka. I mean, you're, you're voting for or against a document that you haven't seen. And, it, and even if you've seen it, it doesn't matter because it'll be changed a few months after the election. I mean, that, that was the last-minute deal, you know, that they had to get the Sunnis on board. And so some people call it the worst-case scenario because from the look of it now, uh, what's going to happen is that two Sunni provinces will reject it, or have uh, rejected it by two-thirds, and it would take only one more province to reject it by two-thirds for the Constitution to be dead. Uh, but that's not going to happen, because that province uh, is going to have 55%, uh, which is not enough. Now, there are charges of fraud, and there's recount, and all sorts of things going on, and so, but, but it's easy to predict what's going to happen. The Constitution will pass, and it will pass but the thinnest of margin, which is apps and charges of fraud, which from the Sunni point of view is absolutely the call to civil war, because it's like, okay, we were cheated. Actually, it should not have passed. And so now, you know, I mean, you start seeing this triangle. We have the Kurds on one side. You've got the Shiites on the other side. So you're going to have, like, Kurdistan, you know, in the west, and Shiitistan in the south. And then you're going to have uh, losers. Then I would call it, you know, mm -hmm. the Sunnis, mm -hmm. who were stuck with uh, n uh, nothing. And uh, for Iran, you know, I say the thing is the Iraq war is over and Iran won. So that's the Shiite part. But but the Kurds is going to be a real problem because uh, if you're a Syrian Kurd, you know, and you look across the border, you know, what, what do you see? You see that Iraqi Kurds are going to become almost independent. Uh, the Turkish Kurds are not going to move because Turkey simply would not allow uh, uh, them to make a move. But, but Syria is a different matter. I mean, I don't know if you followed the story about what's happening in Syria, but uh, uh, Bashar Assad, the president, uh, has never been weaker than now. I mean, not only he got, it's like a trifecta for him of disasters. He's got kicked out of Lebanon, the humiliation of that. 
He's got the U.S. military on the eastern border. He's got the Israeli defense forces in the west. Uh, there is the suicide, well, so-called suicide. In the Middle East, when you hear the word suicide, it makes you wonder, of the interior minister, who is most likely was involved in the murder of Rafi Kariri, the former prime minister of Lebanon. Uh, there's going to be a U.N. report coming out, which most likely will uh, will uh, uh, will show that Syria you know, was one way or the other behind that murder. So anyway, that creates... Uh, an, an extremely difficult situation for the, for the Syrian government, uh, which, by the way, is a government th- that deserves only our, you know, our, our uh, loathing and yeah. uh, absolutely no a- any love whatsoever for that regime. And uh, but oh, I was just bringing that up to say that the Kurds in Syria are going to be emboldened to actually do something. They might see a window of opportunity. And so, what might happen is it's not just a civil war, but a war that expands regionally beyond the borders of Iraq. It could also include Turkey. Uh, Pity Murray's not on the line any longer, yeah. but uh, there's also a significant Kurdish population in some regions of Turkey. So, uh, yes, I mean, we we've certainly have uh, stirred the pot here, and uh, uh, I think it's safe to say that certainly no one in the Bush administration has any clue where this is all going to go. Well, I have another depressing comment to make, is expanding on what Murray said as well. I mean, that <clears throat> we've talked about mostly about the Iraq war, but I believe that just about any examination of what this administration has done in the last four and a half years will will show that they've damaged the infrastructure, they've damaged the, the capability of our government to to function. I mean, just FEMA is this uh, this one example, but I mean they've gone into I think every agency and just put in cronies at the top level to just uh, prevent that them from doing their job, get rid of all the competent civil servants. Uh, you know, just Department of Education, um, uh, Environmental Protection, um, and this is this is going to take years or decades to fix. If you have, even if we had the will to go back in, spend the money to correct it, it's still going to be a, a you know. So I, I'm sorry to be so depressing. Lots of damage is, has been done. Lots I of think, damage. Uh, and none, uh, this is not just the Iraq. Iraq is another uh, enormous. Wait, we're going to be saddled with that for quite a long time. I mean, it's, uh, so Bernard, what's your view? How are we going to get out of uh, what's going to happen? What do you think will happen? What do you wish would happen? Yeah, well, I, I wish we would just withdraw, and I, I can explain why. This would be horrible, but the alternative is even worse. I don't believe we will withdraw. I believe as long as Bush is president, uh, we will be in Iraq. And uh, I agree with you. This could take a long time. Um, the stakes are just too high uh, from the from Bush's point of view, not from my point of view, by the way. I mean, I, I do believe that if we left the Middle East um, and just let those people handle their own affairs, they would sell oil they would uh, at a normal price because that's how free market uh, uh, work, and there's no reason why it wouldn't work. And they would uh, eventually settle one way or the other. It might take time. But, but I really believe that our help is counter help, no matter what that help might be in that part of the world. Uh, because of all the history of Western incursion in the Middle East, which has been... Uh, there's, a, there's a new book out by Robert Fisk, which I uh, highly recommend. I, I've read only parts of it, not the whole thing. Uh, a, a man who works for the Independent and has lived right. uh, there in... Like, he, he lives in Beirut right now and, and knows the region extremely well. And says that... Uh, and it's also what Anthony did, who is a, a Washington Post... A uh, reporter who lived in, in Iraq, also reporting for the Russian Post, uh, also has a book out. And I think he's a he's really a remarkable uh, reporter, I think, and uh, knows the region very well, knows uh, uh, the culture, and and just simply say, look, we Westerners, just especially Americans, just can't pretend we understand. We simply have to respect them and simply learn to leave them alone. And, uh, and but that we cannot do because no, they don't grow broccoli, but cannot. they they have oil, and that is the reason why we can't let go. And so as long as we have that equation, then I think everybody's going to be screwed. Uh, yeah, it's it's been my contention since the early since the beginning the uh, earliest invasion of, of Iraq that that we have absolutely no intention of getting out of there and that the real plan whether they can pull it off is a separate question but I personally I think the real plan was to basically recreate the Warsaw Pact and we would have a, pu- a puppet government that would invite us in to protect them from their enemies around them and we would continue to occupy them and control them for you know for the foreseeable future while we uh, steal their oil resources. Now, the truth is none of this is working out, and it's hard to envision 
any of this working out. So what really will happen? So suppose we don't pull out. What, what do you think, Bernard? What, but, what, yeah, what, but I mean, I, I hate to be, you know, too cynical like uh, somebody like Kissinger or something, but I remember what Kissinger said during the Iran-Iraq war, which was a murderous war, killed like a million people or something. And he said on record that the best possible outcome for the West, for us, would be if the war could go on forever. Uh, and to some extent, the balkanization of that region is the, I mean, from the Bush, from Bush's point of view, again, not from mine, is the least bad outcome. In other words, if you have tiny little fiefdoms fighting each other with warlords, you know, it's not pretty, but you can somehow manage this forever. You don't want a big power that can cause big trouble. And, uh, sure, they'd rather have peace and democracy, but that's just not going to happen. And uh, if it means that they have to have you know, enough troops to prevent the coalescing of these forces into one big thing, they might want to do that. So I really think that for them, when they put on the worst-case scenario, the White House puts on its worst-case scenario hat, they envision uh, Bosnia and Serbia, uh, Montenegro, and so during, during the war, during the civil war, that this will be sort of low-grade civil war going on, you know, forever. And uh, I mean, it's pretty horrifying thought. So I then think. we're talking about 130,000 troops, uh, U.S. troops there. Well, maybe forever. not that much, though. I mean, you know, to be honest, I don't even, I don't think those troops do anything. I mean, frankly, do you read what they do? They occasionally go to Ramadi, they kill 100 civilians, and then they come back. Yeah, there they, was uh, such an incident the, yesterday. The point, I don't think, in fact, they accomplish much of anything. And so if they had 50,000 or 40,000 troops, they probably could do the same. I mean, to do nothing doesn't require too many troops. But well, well, they themselves get killed with some regularity. Let's uh, let's uh, keep that in mind. Yeah. And uh, and so I, I think uh, I think that will that there's every reason that, that to expect that that will continue. Unfortunately. But the, which is why I think the anti-war movement should, if anything, only grow stronger. Simply to cut down the number of troops by you know half or something should not be considered a success from the anti-war point of view. I think it's. Uh, I think one has to change the entire approach to the problem of occupying and telling those people what they should be doing is the wrong thing to do. So you're listening to uh, Left Out on WRCT. Uh, you're welcome to call us at uh, 412-268-9728 or send Bob uh, mail to bob at leftout.info if you wish to uh, contact, via le- contact us via electronic mail. Danny. Well, I just, uh, if, if you don't mind, I can change the subject Please a little do. bit. Please um, do. Well, um, I, there was a column by Paul Krugman, who's one of my favorite columnists, um, and Bernard and I actually we talked about him a little bit in the last the last time Bernard was here. Um, his most recent column is about the, um, the uh, uh, what's it called, the uh, bankruptcy of this uh, Delphi Auto Parts the Delphi, company, yeah, right, a gigantic exactly. company in, in Michigan, makes auto parts, and they employ you know, a tremendous number of people, and, and Krugman was alarmed by this. Uh, and it's it's really part of the pattern of the kind of deindustrialization of America, or the the the, the gradual uh, sort of erosion of the manufacturing base of this country that's that's happening. And this is a big chunk. The, the auto industry is is huge and still there, but it's he was so even Krugman was alarmed about this. And sort of almost at the end of the article, he came around and said, you know, we have to do something about these problems. And if if you think that he's basically starting to admit that the the whole free trade concept may be actually um, suspect in this, even though he was a big free trader. I was about to say, so to be fair about this, you know, I am a big fan of Paul, Paul Krugman. Uh, perhaps, Bernard, you even know him personally at their Princeton. I'm not sure. Uh, he uh, he was initially a big NAFTA supporter. Yes, he was, but I think this is an interesting, and I, well, I've been very impressed by, obviously, his other columns and stuff, but uh, I see him evolving. Did Bernard, do you have any comment on this, or did you see that particular column? Yeah, yeah, I read it. No, I, I think you're right. I think that uh, he was hired as a, as a Friedman-like big, big-time free trader, and he clearly is, is hedging now. And uh, uh, what I think, to me, I mean, I, the way I look at his thing, he says free trade is a good thing, but it's not an ideology. Let's not turn free trade into an ideology. Free trade is probably a good way of doing business, but there are other factors that should be taken into account. And, uh, uh, for example, the thing that Danny is uh, mentioning. But yes. in America, very often it's mentioned as a dogma, and then the consequences are very different when it's a dogma. 
So, yeah, I mean, one of the things uh, we've talked about before, I mean, uh, you know, I mean, my, I feel very strongly about is that, is that this, you know, I, I don't like to see a culture disappear. I don't like to see the, the American farmer, you know, that whole concept of the, the, the family farm, you know, destroyed. And then, then the, the working class people who work in industry, the, 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 the middle class, you used to be able to make a living, a decent living in this country by working in a factory. That's going to be destroyed. That'll be these, these entire communities. So in the two minutes remaining, we have a caller. Uh, Jason from Pittsburgh, go ahead quickly, please. Hi, I would just like to respond to what Bernard said about what our soldiers are doing. Go ahead. I'm sorry. The fact is they're not going out killing hundreds of civilians and then getting blown up. They're actually going out there and doing a very odd on job. And when people hear you talk about things like that and disrespect our men, no one's going to listen to you. No one's going to take you seriously. And everyone's going to view your, your whole philosophy as a bunch of whack jobs. And that's exactly what you are when you make comments like that, disrespecting our men. What, what do you so, know about so, it? Are you okay. a soldier? So, Bernard, go ahead. Yeah, uh, just let me ask you, how many so, uh, civilians have we killed over there? I want a number. Do you know how many we, we've killed? I'm asking you, how many civilians has our military killed since the war started in March 2003? Well, you, you tell me how many suicide bombers have killed civilians. Yeah, exactly it's a fraction. It is an infinitesimal fraction. Okay, I can send you numbers if you give me, okay. The numbers we have killed vary depending on the sources between 40,000 and 120,000. Okay? Oh, jeez, those numbers are out of control. Wait, those numbers, excuse me, go to Iraq body count. These are people that actually have counted the bodies, and these numbers, in fact, are recognized by the Pentagon. You may have heard of the Pentagon, your friend. They recognize the numbers, but you do not. Ha-ha, why not? You don't believe your own Department of Defense? Listen. So you so, live in denial. You live I'm in sorry. complete denial. We're at the we're at the end of our we're at the end of our time. <laughs> Unfortunately, we're at the end of our time, and be delighted to have you call back uh, the next edition of Left Out, and we can continue that conversation. Unfortunately, it's now 7 p.m. Uh, we've been talking with Bernard Chazelle from Princeton University. He was a professor of computer science there. Thank you, Bernard, for appearing on Left Out. Today's, pro- today's program was produced very ably by Matt Horniak, and we'll be back in two weeks' time. Thank you all for listening.